Claptrap, Episode 21, Being a Fighter Pilot and Military Aviation Restoration. everyone welcome back for this week's episode we're going to have a total of four people on the mic we're gonna have myself josh of course and then matt estock from the soapbox derby episode is also going to be joining us and we're going to talk with former air force colonel ron stanich ron is a former fighter pilot as well as a c-130 pilot and then he eventually became a dentist and served as a dental surgeon in the air force so Ron has quite an extensive service record and has experience in a wide variety of different things. And in this episode, we get into everything from his training, his all the places he's been, his love for Las Vegas, and then we even talk about some UFOs and alien sightings. So it's a really great interview, and I hope you guys enjoy. So with that, let's give it up for Colonel Ron Stanich. Ron, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor and privilege to be here. Thank you. You have quite a substantial military record and background, and you also work at a military aviation preservation museum. We'll get into that a little bit later. For now, we'll start at the beginning and kind of work our way up to the present day. So your military training, do you think you can maybe walk us through that and maybe share why you decided to join the military in the first place? That takes a few years training, of course, but I was always interested in the military. When I was a child, my uncles used to take me to the air shows up in Cleveland. And um, uh, the recruiters were there. They were talking. They weren't trying to recruit me. I was younger, but I could hear them talking about the benefits of the military and kind of piqued my interest. And then the air shows, in those days, the Thunderbirds were the main show. And they flew F-100s. And I used to just dream about flying that airplane. And I, I was a model builder, you know, model airplanes. And so I put several together, the F-100. And at school, in art class, I would draw pictures of the F-100 and um, paintings. And I would just think about it all the time. I'd visualize it, but I never thought that I would have a chance even to fly it because they did some awesome shows. You guys might have been to some shows. Yeah, I myself have been out to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in have seen all the stuff they've done out there. Did you have any family in the military? My dad was in World War II, D-Day, and he'd talk a little bit about it, and that piqued my interest. And then when I went to Akron U, they don't have it now, but when I went there, uh, it was Air Force ROTC, it was mandatory, or Army. And you had classes, and then we had to march. Veterans Day, we had to put our uniforms on and march down Main Street in Akron, Ohio. They don't do that anymore, but... Akron still has ROTC. I think they're in the bottom of, I want to say, Shrank South, if memory serves me right. Yeah, we had, I think it was sophomore and junior year. But, I mean, we would fill the streets with students. And then we had movies and speakers come in, and that kind of got me interested. Would it be safe to say, then, that flying was a dream of yours? I had two dreams, other than God and my family. One was flying. And the other was to be a dentist because I'd like to put models together. You work with your hands and 
at Akron I was pre-dent. I got to uh, graduation year, and I paid my tuition at Ohio State. It was the Vietnam era then. It was hard to get in. And they do interviews and they take tests. And I was accepted to dental school at Ohio State, ready to go, had my supplies, and I had a roommate. And I was all ready to go. And a friend of mine I grew up with always wanted to fly, too. He says, hey, they're looking for pilots. And I says, well, I'm all set to go to dental school. I said, what kind of pilots are they looking for? And he said, F-100. <laughs> I thought, let me th- think about this. There was a test the week after that. He, so he talked me into taking the test up in Cleveland, AFOQT, which is a pre-pilot test. And my major was science, physics, chemistry. The test was a lot of physics on it. So I did real well on the test. And then he called. He said they're giving physicals also a couple of weeks. And I said, I'll take it. I didn't think, you know, I thought maybe I was too short or couldn't see enough. But my eyes were perfect. I was in great shape. I was wrestling for high school and college, so I was in good shape. And uh, I get a phone call about a week later or so, and they said, if you want to go to Air Force pilot training, we have a slot for you. I was looking for a sign because I just met the girl I married and a couple other things, and um, I decided I'm not going to go to dental school. This is once-in-a-lifetime thing, and it was a sign. So um, I called Ohio State and said, I'm not coming. I changed my mind. They said, we need a letter. So I wrote a letter, but my slot wasn't for a year and a half because I had to go through some training. So I stayed at Akron my fifth year and got a degree in education. So I was teaching and subbing while I went to uh, basic training to become an officer. You had to be a second lieutenant. You had to have a college degree. There was a couple other schools, Sea Survival, POW Survival. I could talk a little bit about that. But two days after I got married, we were driving to Lubbock, Texas, Reese Air Force Base for undergraduate pilot training because you, you get your wings. And it's, uh, again, 52 weeks, and you fly three different airplanes, uh, the T-41, the T-37, the T-38. I had not been in an airplane except one time. My uncle had a, a 172, and one time he invited me to go up with him in the back seat. I, I was a passenger in a smaller plane, but that even got me more excited. But you start with a T-41, which is a Cessna 152 or Cessna 172. It's a two-seater, the 152, and that's what we had. But it kind of weeds out people that would not be able to fly because some people, you know, they panic. And, I mean, they teach you a lot of different things like takeoff landing, steep turns. It takes courage to learn how to do. And then you solo, and, of course, and I was really nervous that day. So I sang, off we go in the wild, yonder the whole, my whole flight to take my mind off everything. But it was a perfect, I got, you know, I got a high grade and I think that was a six week uh, course. And then you move on to jets. The second one was a T-37. You learn acrobatics and that you learn how to spin. And it washed a lot of people out because some people got sick. You know, when they we start when they started spinning, because you don't know which way you're spinning and you're upside down, but you have to recover. You got to figure out which way you're going, left or right, because you could make it worse if you go the wrong way. There was a couple of my friends, they'd throw up every time they went up and did acrobatics because we pulled four to five Gs doing loops and split Ss and all kinds of stuff. And then they would start throwing up if they were just walking to the airplane. 
And then they, it got to a point where it was so bad, if you mentioned T37, they threw up. So they they self-induced, uh, eliminated themselves because it was just not for them. So you move, let's see, that's like three or four months of flying. You solo and you just, you do a formation takeoffs, formation landings where, I, excuse me for talking with my hands, but these are the wings of the airplane and you overlap and you, you do maneuvers with another airplane. Sometimes you have four together, sometimes eight. That's pretty intense when you learn how to fly formation. I couldn't imagine being that close to other planes doing hundreds of miles an hour. And then when you do maneuvers, how many G-forces are you pulling? You pull so many Gs, sometimes you black out. If you do like an outside loop, all the blood goes to your head and you have a red out. But you wear G-suits, they plug in to air. And if you start pulling Gs, it tightens up and so you don't get blood into your legs. And short guys have the advantage. You probably don't pass out as easy because you have shorter extremities. It's easier on us. Let's see, the 38 was the next one. And we did a lot of formation flyers, acrobatics, formation maneuvers. We did uh, a lot of supersonic flight. They had a restricted area where you go supersonic, which you don't feel at all, but you have a sonic boom. So you have a whole a list of requirements you got to pass day and night. Spatial disorientation's a thing you have to combat where you, your inner ear tell you that you're upside down or sideways and you're not, you have to follow the instruments. So you get a lot of training and the instructor sits behind you in the cockpit. And that's a little different feeling. They'll demonstrate a maneuver and then you got to do it. I had the best instructors in the world. They taught me well. You know, one of the quotes I heard quite a few times that a monkey can fly an airplane you got to be prepared for an emergency. And that's where all the training comes through. And we had emergency training. You know, they shut an engine off, put smoke in the cockpit. We had simulators, thank goodness, for a lot of that stuff. Simulator for the T-37, T-38. From that, you graduate. You get your wings. That's a proud day because they pin the wings on you. And some people go to the bombers and some people go to observation aircraft. Some people go to fighters. So I went on active duty. I, the guard sent me, but this was all active duty. A year of undergrad, and then it was nine months of F-100 school, and that was in Arizona. They throw a lot more complicated things. You drop bombs, rockets, strafe. You shoot like 2,000 per minute. You do air-to-air combat. You do air refueling. You refuel off tankers day and night. You learn how to fly air-to-air combat. A lot of acrobatics. Now, you served during the Cold War. Were you particularly focused on fighting the MiG fighter jet that the Russians had, or were there other ones that you were concerned about as well? All the planes that the enemy had, we were ready for. And then we learned how to do air-to-air combat. That was a big part of it. And how to cover the 6 o'clock for your fellow flyers. Because you might go as a team of four. You might be attacked by eight or ten enemy aircraft. You got to learn how to handle that. That's where the G- big G's come in, where you you maximize the aircraft, you pull as hard as you can, till you ba- kind of black out because they're trying to get. We call it the pipper. It was the the sight. You're trying to get the pipper on them. You could shoot the rocket, or they're trying to get it on you. And you, there's radar. It's pretty interesting. And nowadays, it's high, really high tech. 
T-38 was the first aircraft that would accelerate going straight up. It was powerful, and it was supersonic, and it was a lot of fun. And then the F-100 was the first supersonic fighter at level flight. So we flew a lot of supersonic flights. What mock speeds were you going? Well, 1.4 usually with the F-100. You can get up to almost two with the T-38. So, uh, But now they, they go three or four times. You know, it's a lot different now. We used to have competition with the A-10s. Their sites were a high-tech computer system, but we used to uh, compete against them dropping bombs and strafing with a manual because we put the pipper on, and we used to beat them all the time because we had some really good pilots. Mm-hmm. I came back after I graduated from fighter school. I had to go to POW training, and that's up in Spokane, Washington takes you to the max because they capture you and they stick you in boxes and you escape and then you have to find food and out in the woods and then they capture you again and they put you in these little boxes for days but they teach you how to resist interrogation it's really good training there how to survive eating dandelions and things in the woods so you're pretty prepared sea survival you you parasail off a, a boat and you go up 900 feet with a cable, and you're loaded with shark repellent, radios, mirrors, a raft, food. You have, you're trained how to use it, but then they drop you off this boat. There's a cable there. You push a button, and it releases you, and you fall in the water. Then you have to get the parachute off you so you don't drown, and they leave you there for a half a day. Did you ever have to use your shark repellent? You used everything you had. I didn't see any sharks, thank God. <laughs> But yeah, we use, we used that, and they were calling the air, the guard up for Vietnam. But when I was getting out, I was combat ready. Everybody went through this training. I went with the Air Force, so you're combat ready, ready to go. They even had Viet Cong that defected to our side, and they made the prisoner of war camp exactly what it was in Vietnam. We even ate raw sardines, and they would wake you up and try to get information and things from you. Came back to Mansfield, and uh, they had F-100s there. I was teaching then during the weekend and flying the weekends. 1973, there was a Xenia tornado. It's way before you guys were born. I don't know if you ever heard of the Xenia tornado. Destroyed Xenia, Ohio. But there was like several hundred tornadoes in the Midwest. And our weather instruments in those days weren't like they are now. I mean, we just had thunderstorm warnings and high winds and things, but we were doing an air refueling mission out over Kansas, heading away from Ohio. They were tornadoes. It was over 100 tornadoes in the whole Midwest, and our fuel was low, and turbulence was was really bad. We had a four-ship. I was two. There was one, two, and then three and four. I was a second lieutenant then, so you're always on somebody's wing. Three and four couldn't hang on with us anymore, so they got off because it was just really, really, really bad, and fuel was low. I could tell something was wrong because my stick was so touchy, and I was looking at the guy. I was on his wing. I was overlapping. I was like from here to that wall away from the other cockpit. I could see him inside. He had maps, and we're trying to find an airport to land because we didn't have enough fuel to get back. And I could see ice building up in his airplane. And what happens when ice builds up in your airplane, there's a pitot tube. It kind of clogs up and your airspeed comes down. 
and you automatically push it forward to gain airspeed. Well, he was distracted and he was pushing over. I just couldn't hang on to his wing anymore. So I said, two's breaking off. So I broke off and we were in the weather. I looked at my altimeter and it was going this way, decreasing. And my attitude indicator had me in a dive and I was going really fast. So I pulled a lot of G's, probably six. And I came through the clouds and there was trees. (laughs) So I pulled up. I was above them, but that was the closest I came to not making it. So then I went back up into the clouds and I'm trying to get everything situated because I was watching this guy's wingtip for the last hour and a half. I look at my fuel gauge and I'm on empty and I don't know where I'm at. So I called Mayday and uh, I was near Xenia, Ohio, which, which is where Wright Pat is. So they gave me vectors into the, the airport there. The other three guys had already landed. They didn't think I'd made it because I had less fuel than them. I was flaring to land. and We had drag chutes in the F-100 because it took two miles to land. It was real heavy. So as I came over the threshold, I flamed out. It only has one engine. So if I would have went a different way, I probably wouldn't have made it. So it made me think. I thought, you know, you only live once. And I have one dream completed. I wrote a letter to the dean of dental school at Ohio State. And I just explained that I'm in the Air Force. I'm a pilot and I'm flying. I'm an officer. And um, I still want to do dentistry. It's still in my blood. And I'd like to do that. I thought I'd never hear from the dean because to get in, it was really hard. It was like one out of 50 applicants got in and I turned them down. Got a letter a couple of weeks later from the dean. He wanted to talk to me. Went down to Columbus. We didn't talk much about dentistry. We talked more about flying and the military. He was really interested in that part. But before I left, he said, you know, if you ever got in again, do you think you'd ever drop out? And I said, no, sir. He goes, well, you're in the next class. So I got to do both. I was flying weekends, the F-100, and I was at dental school the other five days at Ohio State. I started that fall. But that close call changed my life. About halfway through, dental school, they, they switched aircraft on us. They gave us a C-130 because weather in Mansfield is pretty bad usually. I was flying all over the world and uh, got to go to a lot of places, but I'd, we'd get an engine problem and we'd have, I'd have to cancel patients. I couldn't do both, so I stopped flying after 10 years of flying. I became the base dental surgeon because I loved it there. It was like a family. How different was flying the fighter plane compared to the C-130? I would imagine it's going from something like a Corvette to like a Cadillac. Well, the F-100 is one seat. You're by yourself. C-130, there's five in the crew. Pilot, co-pilot, engineer, navigator, loadmaster. And then we carried troops, flew all over Germany, dropping parachuters, carried ambassadors, carried coffins, injured people. I think we could carry 70 injured Cargo, food, a lot of things for humanitarian missions. We would drop things in different countries. But it was a lot different because we had a little kitchen. We had a bathroom. We made cakes and pies while we were flying because we could fly for 10 or 12 hours if we took tanks. And went to Germany a lot, Japan, Hawaii, all 50 states I was in. Since you've been in every state, what's your favorite one? Las Vegas, Nevada. (laughs) Because I'll tell you, the first time I saw Las Vegas, I was a T-37. We, we were allowed to go do an out and back. We had to plan the trip. And I'd never been to Las Vegas. 
This was back in the early 70s. But it was weather the whole way, pitch dark. We get to Las Vegas, flying instruments, come down through the clouds, and all of a sudden, the black, it was night, lit up, dropped through the clouds, and there was a million lights there. It was like, holy moly. Okay, this is the honest-to-God truth because I kept record. Since that day, I've been to Las Vegas over 200 times. Wow, that's incredible. I just like it. You know, the shows, the food, and all that stuff. But that was my my favorite state. I even got to fly one time at Ohio State football game, you know, at the beginning where they yeah. sing the song. And we had a four-ship, and we had to practice the timing and all that. But I got to fly over a game. Speaking of Nevada and the desert, did you ever – you know, there's Area 51s out there and all these. I never, I never saw like UFOs. No, or, I never saw that. Never saw you. I've heard rumors, but I never got to go there. <laughs> but you never saw UFOs while flying in your time? No. no. I saw a lot of falling stars, and but I never saw no. a flying saucer. Some people claim they have. I don't friends know. Friends like that you worked with ever talk no. about? There was no, no. chatter? No. no, no. Just as like a tangent to that, have you seen, I think it's the Pentagon released all the Navy files with like that Tic Tac UFO that they caught on camera? I've heard rumors recently. They had some pictures and and then I think in one of those newspapers you get at a grocery store, like a Martian or something. I don't believe it right now, but I believe that there's life up there somewhere. I mean, they're finding things on Mars. We landed on Mars this past month, I think. Saw a lot of eclipses, really nice. You know, up there, when, when you get up above the ground clutter, there's a lot of lights on the ground. But when you're up where it's really like at 40 or 50,000, 45,000, you can really see the stars, millions of them. And I mean, it's just beautiful. It's like a different world. What's the most difficult part about flying? Is it the takeoff or the landing or something else? Well, the landing is the most dangerous, they say. There's procedures for both landing, takeoff, and you have checklists when, before you land, after landing. And so you follow the checklist. And I still I still have checklists. I live by the checklist. Now, with the F-100, you know, dropping, I had lost a friend. That when we strafed on the range, that's 20-millimeter shells. You had to pull up before you saw the bullets hit because you were gone so fast. And they would ricochet up. And I was with a guy that shot himself for well, the airplane. He lived, and we gave him the bullets at Christmas or something like that. But a friend of mine, when we were uh, after we graduated, he was strafing at, at the range, and he didn't pull up enough. He went right into the, the ground. So, but I was in air shows, and a lot of memories there. You know, there's a couple experiences that really made me like choke up one was i got to fly even as a second lieutenant like the dayton air show i didn't do the the thunderbirds did i flew in and had a static display where you park and then people walk by and they get to sit in your plane and this was right after vietnam and i had several people that came and wanted to ask to sit in the, in the airplane because they had experiences in vietnam either as a flight crew or with the F-100, some, like a mechanic or something, and they would sit there and cry. It brought back memories. And they would take pictures because I could relate to them. So that happened a lot. And they'd have their families there, and their kids would sit up there and their wife and take pictures of the family and stuff. But 
it was the workhorse of Vietnam. So everybody that went to Vietnam knew what an F-100 was. Close ground support, the radar and things like that. We prevented a lot of casualties. It was just emotional there. So is the F-100 Super Sabre your favorite plane of all time then? Yeah, it was definitely the F-100 because I dreamt about it as a kid. And then another big honor that choked me up is like they have an F-100 at the base at Mansfield at, at the gate. They put my name on it because I was the last guy that retired that flew the F-100. And we had a lot of higher ranking. I was just a colonel, but we had generals and that. But uh, my name was on there for 12 years the gate and I got pictures here of that but the governor came and they had it under a cloth and they pulled it and that was a big honor for me I'm from Barberton and people laugh about Barberton if I'm traveling and I make a mistake with grammar or something I'll say well I'm from Barberton and they go that well then that, that's okay we understand I actually used to work in Barberton it's the magic city right I love Barberton I just heard that the chicken is amazing or the chicken dinner capital of the world. Yeah. Five chicken dinner places there. That's the only thing I know about Barberton. That just reminded me of another story. Got It's been 50 years since I've said any of this stuff, most of it. They let me go VFR, so you're off instruments, and I clicked off the, v, the IFF so they couldn't track me. I called my parents before I left, and I said, bring the neighbors out, come out in the backyard, because I knew where we, I live. It's illegal, but... It, Statue limitations would drop, but uh, they lived in Barberton. So they had all the neighbors out in the backyard. And I came down low and I did an upside down aileron roll over my house and pulled up and came across again and did a split S, then went back to the base. And that was, that was it. There was probably a UFO sighting that night. Probably. <laughs> I, I, I did oh, some boy. crazy things. And I'm, I, I don't know if I'm ashamed of them or proud of them. I don't know if you've ever been up to Mackinac in Michigan. Oh, there's a bridge there, the Mackinac Bridge. It's a couple miles long, 250 feet high. But we used to drop bombs up at the range up in Michigan. And this one guy that kind of took me under his wing, he was crazy. We used to, you know, buzz towers and cows and things like that. We'd go down. and I was only a second lieutenant, so I had to do everything he did. We used to go up, drop our bombs and then on the way back, we'd go under the bridge, just him and I, and then sometimes at the afterburner and go under the bridge, which is illegal. But we'd turn off. They they lost track. I mean, so they couldn't ever prove that we did that. But I thought it was part of the routine. But then I found out from other guys that nobody else did that. But that was a thrill. Were you in the military when the whole Gary Powers incident happened? He was a spy plan. They shot him down. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm familiar with it, but it was before me, I, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that whole incident happened around the same time you were doing the POW training because I would imagine that would have made that whole situation very real for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure if he was a military pilot, he had to go through POW training. It was required, you know, how to survive and on your own and how to live again off the land and make shelters and we had a big course on this escape and evasion was called and they taught you how to like hide and try to get back to our side of the lines and get help but that was that was huge and then once you're captured there's you know there's just different ways where you um resist interrogation i mentioned that because and then you learn all that where there's the nice guy type thing and then there's the mean guy and 
if you don't tell us what we want to know, we're going to get the mean guy in here. Basically that. But you don't want to be captured. I mean, they even, in those days, gave you a pill. If you got captured, it looks like they're going to torture you. Take it and you're done. Wow. The public doesn't know that either. But well, they do now. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I'm, th- I'm sure things have changed. We're talking 50 years ago. That's a long time. But probably at that time, they still use cyanide pills, right? Eesh. I had 33 and a half years in the military. I retired in 02. But we used to do a lot of neat things at Mansfield. I was a base dental surgeon. Then I became the hospital commander, like Patterson. He was right after me. And in those days, it was a mobile hospital. We could set up camp, and we did the humanitarian trips. We would go to a country and give out eyeglasses, hearing aids. And my last trip was Belize. And we took three C-130s loaded with medical gear. But I wasn't flying at that point. We saw 1,600 people. We saved a lot of lives. Everyone had an infection, so we took a lot of antibiotics. But a lot of people have rotten teeth. And I I was there as a commander, but I pulled over 700 teeth on that trip. And then we had another dentist there. But they eat a lot of sugar cane in Belize. But it was a great trip. And C-130s took us home and... They let me fly the airplane home, the C-130, because I used to fly. That was emotional, too. And then, you know, not only did you have all this service stuff, but now you're here at the MAPS Museum, which I think is also incredible. So you're still dedicating your time to airplanes and everything that goes along with that. Can you tell us a little bit more about you know, what you do here at MAPS and kind of what got you into that journey. I had some patients say, you got to get out to MAPS. So I checked with that and I joined. It's real cheap, like $40 a year. And we have over 800 members, but we have a lot of events. We do things for the kids, like busloads of seniors from the high schools. I just want to read the MAPS mission statement. Mass Air Museum is a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating people about the history of aviation and its impact upon society. It accomplishes this mission by acquiring, restoring, preserving, studying, and exhibiting the impact of aviation on the culture of man. They bring history here. They keep history going. They don't want people to forget about World War II, Vietnam, Korea, everything from the Civil War till now. Well, I can attest, I think it was you, Matt, that said it when we first walked in. When you step into this building, it's like taking a step back in time because all of the old airplanes, and they look like like they were in mint condition. Yeah, just like, just walking through the hangar, it was like, right. oh, wow. Well, they got that canvas one. It was from the 1909, I think, right with the Wright brothers, yeah. all the way up to now. And they got the F-16, F-8. I think they got an F-18. They're working on it. We get them in pieces, and we put them together. So I really like coming here. Not everyone served in the military. A lot of them did, but everybody here has the same interest about the history. We bring Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. We have all kinds of big events on Veterans Day. We're going to have two big programs this year because last year with the COVID, we we had to cancel. And they, they do a lot of speakers that come in and, and people. And it's really a neat place to be. How many planes does the museum currently have? And how do you come by acquiring these things? Do you get them? You said they came in pieces. Do you have people out like roving junkyards looking for long lost pieces of all these airplanes? Somebody will call and 
they'll take pictures and it's all out there where they'll find parts of planes or like rusted out airplanes and they'll restore them. Some of them, are, they fly in, they're in great shape. They educate. You can get a tour here any day. And the tours are three to four hours long. We have the Gallery of Heroes that we have memorabilia from pretty much all the wars, the uniforms and the weapons they used and people that lived around here. Um, we have over 50 airplanes now. They're restored pretty much exactly how they were. We're doing remodeling now. We're moving some of our displays from downstairs, upstairs. We're expanding. We're putting a restaurant in. It's about ready. New displays. So there are always projects. We're going to build a new hangar in the back. We have a lot of weddings here, like funerals, a lot of big meetings. You know, the Chamber of Commerce from the cities around us will come. It's just an awesome place. And I feel at home here. And I have a grandson. He's in, He's 12 now, but... I bring him out once in a while, and he's starting to think about getting in the military. But my daughter's, like, hesitant about it. She heard all of your stories. <laughs> Not all. I used to have that, that plane, and I used to drop ashes, like I mentioned before. But the first time I did that, a friend of mine who was Dean up at Akron knew Dean Sumner. He's not there anymore, but he was just a good friend. But his his aunt B, her name was Aunt B, and there's Sumner Butter who used to be here up in Akron, but she died and she didn't have any children, so she left him a million dollars. And he always wanted an airplane, so he went and bought a brand new 172 with turboprop, beautiful airplane. And she gave her body to Case Western Reserve, and up there they cremate him when they're done, and they call. And her well, she wanted her ashes spread over the Sumner farm where they made the butter. So he calls me one night and he says, Hey, we got a, I got Aunt B's ashes today. What are you doing this evening? I said, Nothing. He says, Well, can we drop the ashes? So I said, Sure. So I met him at the airport, Akron Muni. And he had his big, not real big, but a pretty good size container of her ashes. The farm was up near the Coliseum. It's not there anymore, but it was right near there. And you, once you take off from this airport, you can see the Coliseum right away. So I, I buzzed the, the farm, got everything trimmed up, and slowed it down as, about as much as I could. So, so are you ready? And he goes, he goes, yeah. So I said, okay. So I opened my window. I just gave me the ashes. So I did that thing. And uh, you're supposed to open both sides. I learned real quick. Because we were covered. Did you ever see the Three Stooges yes, when they had flour? Now you could see yes, with their eyelids. And and uh, we were coughing because we oh, okay. sw- we inhaled her. And I, I, honestly, I was spinning ashes for a month. <laughs> that was coming up from my lungs. And it, it was embarrassing, but Aunt B got around. So we had to get, get a professional crew to clean his air. It was a brand new airplane. And he didn't know how to fly. And I used to... Take off. We used to take, he was Dean at Akron U, and we'd get visitors in, and he wanted to take them and show them Akron from an airplane. But he wanted to fly it, but he couldn't take off or, or land. So I'd take it off and give him the, the yoke, and we'd have some deans from other schools in the back, usually, or some students that were thinking about Akron U. You know, he couldn't coordinate. He didn't know anything about flight. He would just push the rudder, and it would yaw, and people would get sick all, pretty much all the time. It was it was a, it was a lot of fun, and it was his airplane. He he loved to fly, and 
But he'd say, there's there's a stadium, and he'd turn the wheel, and we'd go up, like, almost upside down, people in the back. <laughs> it was just, it was fun. But, I mean, I, I helped him. But anyway, Aunt B, we still, some of my friends talk about Aunt B. Do any of the planes here get flown, or are they in no. full retirement? The airplanes here, you can't fly them. Well, I think most of them, the engine's gone. But uh, they're still very interesting. We have a whole section on engines, if you're into that. I don't know if it's an engineer. <laughs> yeah. Are you into like jet engines and things? Uh, I don't work. Uh, obviously, in school we studied, but now I'm. Yeah, yeah I don't work in that in that field. But yeah. it's interesting. It'd be interesting to see for sure. Yeah, it's funny after going to school. Like when you get in a, when I get in a plane now, I'm like I know how delicate of a balance it is. Humans really aren't meant to fly. I was afraid of heights pretty much my whole life. <laughs> I wouldn't go in a Ferris wheel or anything like that. But when you're in an airplane, you got control. You don't really feel like you're in danger to me. And I still wanted to fly even though I was afraid of heights because there's a lot of – I shouldn't say afraid of heights. It, I just didn't like heights. Well, you're going – you said you went 50,000 feet. So you are you learn to forget that height or fear. Really. Oh, yeah. We, <laughs> to, we would fly until the air wasn't like – uh, strong enough to keep us up, you know. The, the lift. It was, yeah. And then it would just fall. Sometimes we'd just point it up until it would stop, and then we'd bet on which way it was going to fall, this way or this way, because it was so quiet. We'd pull it back, to thr- the throttle back, idle, and then up at 50,000 feet. But you could almost see, the, like, the roundness of the earth when you go that high. It's pretty neat. So can you dispel the flat earth theory right here? I can. That's one thing I can do that. Here we go. It's on record. But I used to I used to fly just for to to relax. Yeah. To unwind. I'd take my airplane and just go out flying and it, and it just relaxing or the F one hundred. And I used to like to go through the clouds and do like Elon rolls through that and it was just a lot of fun. Uh, they're just it's just amazing feeling. It's like a different world to me. I was just lucky that I got to do that. I thank God every day for that. The people I met, the places I went, a lot of places, and a lot of good experiences. Okay, so maybe to wrap things up, could you explain what the easiest way is for someone who's interested in the MAPS Museum and aviation restoration? What is the easiest way for them to get involved? Come to MAPS and join. We had a membership meeting yesterday. They have membership meetings because we have all these projects. But just tell them you want to help. And if you have like a specialty, you know, I helped a guy today that likes to do cockpits. We have a lot of ex-pilots, a lot of mechanics from the military, non-military. They just come and join and then start coming down, meeting people, come to some of the events. Um, and it's it's real easy. If you want to join, if you have $40, I'll take you over right now. You could be a member. <laughs> and then that way, all everything's free. You know, you don't have to pay when you come for the tour. And you get like 40% off gifts. I mean, you get your money back right away. Plus, you're a member. They'll find something for you to do. It's up to you if you want to like give a couple hours a month or just to come to some of the events is worthwhile. They have some very interesting programs. It's worth it big time. Before COVID hit, we were getting 40,000, 50,000 people. I mean, the people are just dedicated. They have fun here. And it's, it's, it's like a family here. Well, Ron, we would like to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's truly been a pleasure to get to know you and listen to all the different stories that you've shared with us today. Thank 
You're welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for making this fun. I had fun. Well, there you have it. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to Ron and getting to learn about all the different trainings for being a fighter pilot. And if you enjoyed what you heard, you go out and support the MAPS Museum. If you're in the Northeastern Ohio area, I hope you actually physically make it over to the museum and check it out. It's really cool. They have, I don't even know how many different planes there. I think Ron said close to 50. And, you know, they're in the process of restoring some. Most of them are already restored. Uh, They have some in the hangar and then they have some in the uh, old airstrip behind the building or parking lot now. You can get right up close to them. You can see how big they are. Some of them I think you can get in the cockpit. So it's just a really cool place and I hope you guys support it and check it out. So with that, we'll see you next time.